Jermaine Afonso. Give me a name. I'm going to say Henry VIII. Welcome to Give Me a Name, where a guest presents me, Ben Kirschenbaum, with a dead historical figure they find interesting, and we discuss. This episode is a long one, so I was thinking about cutting it in half, a la Henry VIII, but decided to go with one episode instead. Henry VIII, born June 28th, 1491. He died January 28th, 1547, and he was the King of England from 1509 to 1547. So good years. Good years, long reign. Yeah, long reign and a great king, (laughs) as we'll find out. Let's just start off by saying he was great, undeniably. um, No flaws. Yeah. One of those great non-controversial historical figures. They're rare, they're few and far between, but we've got it here. Right, exactly. So how does this ledge... Okay, we, we we can break the news to the audience. Remember that this guy is pretty rough. He's rough. He's no good. Uh, <laughs> just do a complete um, one eight. Yeah, it's not. It's not a. It's not a pretty story. But it's. I, I think it's more. I think people know a little bit of. I feel like he's one of the British people that everyone kind of knows something about, right? Yes. Everyone kind of knows something about Henry VIII, and you know, I think they know about the six wives. I think there's this image of him as like a lecherous man who sort of switched wives at will and you know that's not far from the truth but the reality is a little more complicated sure. and, and more interesting than that i think he's also one of the few historical figures from this time period so we're talking all the way back in the 1500s i think people know what he looks like yeah that's actually that's a good point because yeah. the paintings are so famous yeah. at least what he looked like later in life when he was very overweight yeah right and you know that that is it's also one of those time periods where you know we'll talk a little bit about the war of the roses and when you're in that time period and you read about it, it's like the people are sort of two-dimensional a little bit. Like mm-hmm. you don't really know much about them. They haven't recorded that much. And starting at around Henry's time, you're right. The paintings are more clear. You know what he looks like. You even know like what he was saying. You, there are like almost no gaps in his history. Right. So that's really interesting. And um, also for some historical context, this is not too far after the invention of the printing press. Right. This is, like you said, you know, the Renaissance has been going on for a little bit in Italy. So the advancement of painting is happening. Yeah. So there's a reason, I think, why right around this time period, you would have a king who we recognize a little bit better than we do the all the kings before it of the kind of Middle Ages. Yeah, exactly. So... How does this guy come to power, I think, is kind of the first question. Henry VIII is a famous Tudor king from the House of Tudors. So really, we have to go back to how the Tudors came to power, right. namely Henry's father, Henry VII, or Henry Tudor, yes. one and the same. And the War of the Roses from 1455 to 1487 was a series of civil wars in England, which it, that makes it sound, because I just named a 32-year period, that makes it sound like it's constantly going on. It's not. It's like fits and starts. Yeah. There are some very bad, bloody battles, but I feel like it's not the same thing. It's not like our civil war for 32 years. It's No. No, but but it is unstable, and they are, like, constantly switching kings. Right. And they are, like, there's just this constant vying for power. So I think it's this very unstable period before Henry VII wins the throne and sort of leads into this period of peace that they had not seen in a while. So I think that was refreshing when that happened. Right. And the general battle is between the House of Lancaster and the House of York. Those are the two. House of York is represented by the White Rose, House of Lancaster by the Red Rose, hence War of the Roses. And just like you said, it's just constantly going back between the York leaders and the Lancaster leaders. In 
the 1470s, early 1480s, it looks like House of York is one. Yes. Under the King Edward IV. Right, right. And this is this is also what Game of Thrones is a little bit based on. I don't know if you watch that, but yeah. the the Lannisters and the Starks. So that's sort of where that is. Oh, taken I didn't know. From. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. So that's sort of uh, where he got the inspiration. For right. That stuff. So Edward the Fourth wins because a dragon. Yes. <laughs> he gets the power of the dragon. The power of the dragon. <laughs> that is completely. It's crazy how ripped from uh, history it is. It's Just pretty like, much one yeah, for one. It's like gee, you you think this guy's an imagination. And you're like, oh. Right. Yeah, yeah. Lord of the Rings, exact same yeah. thing. That's yeah. just <laughs> a couple yeah. hundred years earlier. Yeah, it's insane. <laughs> so Edward the Fourth is in power. He dies in 1483. So again, 1483. We're still a good amount before Henry the Eighth. We're still, you know, eight years before he's even born. Right. Edward the Fourth has a son named Edward, who is Edward the Fifth, but he's only 12 years old, mm-hmm. and he has a little brother as well, um, who is only nine years old. Yeah. Edward V is the rightful heir to the throne. He's the oldest son. But Edward IV also has a brother, famously Richard III, which is one of the, you know, he's known from the Shakespeare plays as the Hunchback King. I did read it up that he actually probably only had scoliosis. He wasn't, I think Shakespeare really... Shakespeare's kind of mean. Yeah, Shakespeare really... really, really, It's like, jeez, man, you really leaned into this. Yeah, and I think, talking about modern TV shows, House of Cards largely based off of Richard III. Yes, I think that's right. Like a modern, you know, kind of ruthless politician. Right, exactly. Richard III maneuvers it in a way that he actually becomes king over his nephew, Edward V. It is a famous sort of series of events, and the brothers are known as the princes in the tower. They're put in the Tower of London, this 12-year-old boy, this 9-year-old boy, for quote-unquote protection at first, but then they kind of mysteriously disappear. And in 1484, after the fact, Richard III is declared to be the King of England and that those two boys were actually illegitimate heirs to the throne. So Richard III takes over. And the way that the story was always told is this idea that Richard III is like the Kevin Spacey character in House of Cards and is just ruthless and an incredible political maneuverer. Right. So Richard III takes power. And because he took power in such a weird sort of almost sneaky way a lot of people so rich oh i, I should have mentioned this richard the <laughs> third is is york he's house yes, of york yes yeah um a lot of the people who were on his side originally in the house of york turn on richard the third because of these weird series of events yeah and they turn to the leader of the lancasters at the time the natural leader would be henry the seventh yes he was sort of weird, where he because he was not like he was. They both the uh, Lancasters and the Yorks. They traced their lineage to this guy John of Gaunt, right? Who was the son of Edward the Third, right? And so that was sort of the. And we're talking two hundred years yeah, earlier, oh, two hundred plus earlier. years earlier. Yeah, yeah. And so Henry the Seventh was related to John of Gaunt, but like in a weird right. way, like he was a ba- through the bastard line, right. and so he didn't really have. Uh, he wasn't a true, like, in line for the And that plays a big role in both his reign and Henry VIII's reign, that they have a very weak claim to the throne. It affects everything. It, like, totally causes everything that happens. Yes, and an insecurity that yeah. lasts for both of their reigns. So Henry VII is able to take away power, is able to defeat Richard III at the Battle of Bosworth. This, again, going back to Shakespeare, this is the battle where Richard III, Richard III is the last English king or queen to actually die in battle. Yeah, Henry the Seventh is the last king also to win 
his the throne in battle. Right. And that's the famous Richard III line, my horse, my horse, my kingdom for a horse. Right. He falls off the horse in the middle of the battle. I mean, he obviously didn't say that, but he obviously wasn't Maybe. a hunchback. Shakespeare is just... <laughs> Shakespeare made a lot of shit up. <laughs> yeah. We're exposing him. Yeah. That's, Richard III is bullshit. Midsummer Night's Dream is, is totally... <laughs> that happened. That's word for word. That was, he's basically he was a stenographer. A yeah. <laughs> yeah, on that one. So Henry Tudor, Henry VII, one and the same, becomes the King of England in 1485. Right. And Henry VII rules for uh, a little while in this sort of new era of quote-unquote stability. And like we said, so Henry VII's claim to the throne in terms of his actual descendant, in, in terms of who he is as a descendant, is what is like really... It's it's completely, yeah. It's, very, it's so weak. They just sort of have to kind of go with it. And everyone has to sort of agree that, all right, this is better than... Switching kings every, like, six years. (laughs) He has this, you know, weak claim to the throne, other than also he won the battle. So that's something. Right. But then the third thing, which might be the most important thing, is who he marries. Yes. He marries Elizabeth of York, who is the boys in the tower, Edward V's sister. Yes. So basically, he's bridging the gap between the House of York and the House of Lancaster by making this marriage. And he literally makes the Tudor emblem, which is still the emblem of England, a red rose and a white rose to symbolize we're we're done with the War of the Roses. It's a little corny. Like, it's (laughs) a compromise. Like, it's both. We're both. We're both the Tudors and the... We're we're both the Yorks and the Lancasters. It's very corny. It's a very lame way to make... But you could see the people being like, I see what he did there. I I hope there was one guy that was like, I don't know. (laughs) And that's why they don't like him. Where it's like Henry, Henry, he's like killing a bunch of people, and he's like, "Well, that's fine," but I just don't like the whole. This is lame. (laughs) So, House of Lancaster and House of York are more or less united. Henry the Seventh is king. Henry the Seventh is king for a while. He eventually dies in 1509. What happens is in the early 1500s, Henry the Seventh has two sons. The oldest son is Arthur. And the next son is Henry, who, who will go on to become Henry VIII. Arthur's the oldest son. He's expected to become the king. He is betrothed to a woman named Catherine of Aragon, who is the daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain, famously of the well Spanish Inquisition yeah. and also uh, uh, sponsoring Columbus's expedition to America. Yes. And in 1502, so while Henry VII is still king, Arthur dies at the age of 15, making Henry the now natural heir. Right. And because of that, because Henry was the spare, uh, he sort of got to live outside of his father's eye. Like his father really had this control over Arthur and was really trying to groom him in order to be king. And Henry got to sort of live sort of a wilder life. He got to be freer. He lived with his mother. He was sort of raised the way girls were traditionally raised at the time. And then that all changed when he turned 10 and his brother died. Right. He was uh, moved to his, and then actually his mom died like a year later. Um, And so within that year, he, his whole world was turned upside down. He was sort of under his father's control and he didn't really like it. I think he was sort of bristled at that. Right. And he's always kind of this like wild sportsman and kind of, 
it doesn't even when he does become king he does get involved with some of the technical aspects of being king but he also really likes handing over power to various people yeah i think he he he's like a an athlete he was he's like a charming guy he, right he likes like that part of being king he, right he's not quite into the minutiae until until i think later on and we should also mention that the image that i said before of henry the eighth as this very overweight guy that is last 20 years of his life beforehand he's like this six foot two red hair you know strapping you know good looking guy yeah yeah totally athletic um loved singing and dancing wrote music yeah right it's it's so weird you just don't think of him that way spoke many languages i think i think he spoke french and latin yeah so he's got some he's not the the you know kind of brutal slash um uncivilized, I guess, king that we sort of usually associate with Henry VIII. Right. And, you know, I think he was also really liked by the people in comparison to his father, who was sort of this, I think, especially towards the end of his life, this sort of sickly, private, uh, miserly, very paranoid guy. And I think Henry was just seen as his breath of fresh air. He was really charismatic. He was really out there. And he, you know, as soon as he became king, he sort of immediately started overturning things of his father's and sort of got rid of his people and brought in a, a new crop of people. And I think people really, the people of England really liked that. Right. Um, so uh, I'll just say briefly, and this is kind of a bit of a tangent, Arthur, the older son, dies most likely, not necessarily, but most likely of uh, something called the sweating sickness. Right. And this is kind of a mysterious thing. It might have to do with some random virus that modern, modern scientists don't quite know what the hell happened, but this was like a... I was going to say pandemic, but I guess it's just England. So endemic or whatever. I don't know. Check with the (laughs) WHO or whatever. Um, But uh, for about 60 years in English history during Henry, both Henry VII's reign and Henry VIII's reign, it was this terrible disease that would basically, uh, people would get the symptoms and drop dead within like three hours. Jesus. (laughs) um, So uh, Anne Boleyn, Henry's second wife, will later get it. And Henry VIII, who's a pretty bad hypochondriac, partially because he's afraid of plague, but also this sweating sickness, like for a few days, it's like, I don't want to see you. Like, just go. Yeah, yeah, he's horrified. And it is very like, you know, some people did react to COVID that way when like a loved one got sick and they were like, I'm really sorry, but I can't. I'm never going to see you again. Um, so Henry the, okay, so Arthur dies, Henry the eighth is the natural heir. And sure enough, in 1509, uh, Henry the seventh dies, Henry the eighth takes power. Right. Almost immediately after he takes power, he is betrothed or, or I'm sorry, he was right after Arthur dies, even though Henry is a little kid, they say, you're going to marry Catherine of Aragon. Right. And this is a thing they did back then. They would like promise kids to other kids and it was very weird like even arthur i think was like when he was born i think he was promised to catherine of aragon who was right. all, who, like one years old right and so they were just like you're gonna get married and then henry was i think like they, they, there's a story about like the, some ambassador came and they just like held arthur up and he was like look he looks good right and they're like, all right and also the kid thing consummating a marriage was a big deal in terms of making it official. Well, yeah. So when they're betrothed as kids and obviously not having sex, it's kind of always questionable whether it's an official marriage or not. Right. And they put them, so they got married and they did go into a room together. Right. And I think they assumed that a consummation happened. I think Arthur supposedly came out and said like, oh, gentlemen, I, 
I went to Spain last night, <laughs> you know what I mean? And things like that. And so they were like, I get, yeah, they must have consummated it. But then later it came out that probably he didn't. Catherine claimed there was no consummation. Right. And this ends up being hugely controversial. Yeah. And that's so what I find so interesting about all these stories. It sounds like we're just talking about like gossip and private lives. These decisions, whether, for example, whether Arthur and Catherine had sex, yeah. has huge ramifications for people's lives. It's the course of English history changes <laughs> because they may have had sex or may not have had sex, and no one knows for sure. So Henry, the after Arthur dies, after his brother dies, Henry the uh, Eighth is betrothed to Catherine of Aragon, who is his widow, mm-hmm. Arthur's widow. And in 1509, Henry becomes king and also marries Catherine of Aragon. Uh, Catherine of Aragon, by the way, uh, five and a half years older than Henry. Yeah. But since Henry is only 17, she's still can can give birth to children. Yes, exactly. And that was very important to Henry because of what we talked about earlier. He was very desperate to have children and specifically a male heir because he was insecure that insecurity had been put into him by his father. And so he was desperate for that security to the Tudor line, to have that male heir. Right. Uh, I think Henry also cites that the last English queen, there wasn't an English queen since an English queen called uh, Matilda, which is 400 years earlier. And she wasn't even crown queen and kind of lost control of the empire. So I think that there's this, uh, that that plays a part. He he associates female leaders as weak and not able to control. So that's why it's got to be a guy. Yes. And I think also there was a bit of a masculinity aspect to it that like if you are able to produce a man, that makes you a man. Yeah, I think there was some element like that. Like he saw it as reflecting on himself. I, I think, and I think that plays a role in the subconscious of everything that happens underneath. I think he sort of hates himself for right. not being able to produce a male heir right. for a long time. And he takes it out on everyone around him. He takes it out on everyone. So Catherine of Aragon and Henry are married for a long time. Yeah, it's like 25, 30 years or something. Right? Yeah, like, I think in total it looks like about 24 years-ish. Yeah. And for the most part, even though Henry VIII has a lot of uh, mistresses, and we'll talk about a couple right. of the most famous ones. Yeah. He kind of, it's described often as a happy marriage. Yeah. And, you know, they sort of had this rare marriage where they got along even before. Like when he first met her, he liked her. He, you know, it wasn't like this thing that he was dragged into. And the, I, they, yeah, they, for all intents and purposes, they seem to have a pretty happy marriage. I think he did have some hesitations just because of the brother thing. Yes. And Henry VII also did because they were not sure about, you know, is that technically his brother's wife? Is that his sister-in-law? Is that legal? Is this incest? Right. And so they wrote to the Pope, Pope Julius II, I believe, who gave them a special dispensation saying that this marriage is legal and uh, it can proceed. And so, and that is also hugely controversial. Right. So Henry VIII is in a somewhat happy marriage, but the problem is that Catherine of Aragon is not producing a male heir. Uh, she does have a daughter yes. who uh, named Mary, who mm-hmm. will go on to become Bloody Mary. Yes. After uh, killing a bunch of, uh, well, oh, kills a bunch of Protestants, Protestants. because, and we can get into how that works when it comes to Henry. By the way, though, she's nicknamed Bloody Mary. Her father, Henry, is 
responsible for way more deaths than yeah. Mary would be. Right. Is that true? Is, is it ultimately T.S.? I actually don't know much. About I don't know her. about deaths per year. I don't know about his... <laughs> per capita. <laughs> the per capita deaths. But most of the stats I read said that Henry VIII is responsible for approximately 57,000 oh, deaths. Oh, wow. And Mary, the the biggest sort of wipeout of Protestants that she had was like 300 or something like oh, that. Oh, interesting. Yeah. But Mary had a much shorter reign right, right, than right. Henry VIII. Right. So Henry VIII, pissed off that he's not getting a male heir, he's blaming it on, he thinks that it's because God is mad at him. Yeah, he thinks God has blighted this marriage, that it's because he married his sister-in-law. Maybe they did consummate the marriage. He was tricked. He was like, he can't, because he can't explain it. You know, they have Mary, and then they have five other children who are either stillborn or, you know, die shortly after infancy. And some of those are boys. And I think that really, it just throws him off. He's like, there's something wrong here. There's something wrong. And he quotes, and he's going to quote this again later, there is a Leviticus chapter 20, verse 21, um, which I know you know by heart. You want to quote oh, it? Oh, yeah. yeah I'll <laughs> okay. <laughs> it Don't is. Do it. <laughs> If a man shall take his brother's wife, it is an impurity. He hath uncovered his brother's nakedness. They shall be childless. And Henry VIII is going to use this in order to break away from the Catholic Church. But he's a genuinely religious Catholic at the time. And he might really buy it that that this verse is the reason why his exactly what you said, his marriage is marred, his marriage is doomed. And he's not going to have a male heir. Yeah, I mean, he, you know, for all of the reforms that follow from him and that come from him, he's like a con- super conservative guy and a, a Catholic really for his whole life. Right. He never really changes. So for a little context, in 1517, Martin Luther famously pins the 95 Theses and starts what is the Protestant Reformation. Um, at the time, Henry VIII, is very anti-Reformation. He sticks with the Catholic Church to the extent that he wrote a book-long sort of uh, essay about Martin Luther, referring to him as, quote, a venomous serpent, a pernicious plague, infernal wolf, an infectious soul, a detestable trumpeter of pride, calumnies, and schism. Calumnies? What is the word? <laughs> it's, um, it's uh, whatever it is. It's it's, <laughs> it's brutal. Yeah, it's and he is given an award by Pope Leo X. He is called Defender of the Faith. So it's ironic because in a little over a decade he's going to completely split with the Catholic Church. Yeah. But at the time he is very anti-Protestant Reformation and a champion of the Church of Rome. Right. So in fifteen nineteen, Henry has an illegitimate child. Yes, and this is also very ironic because he is having this affair. He has an illegitimate son. And it's with Elizabeth Blount, or Bessie Blount. Um, He names the kid Henry Fitzroy, which literally means son of the king, which is weird because you would think that as a bastard child, he would be ashamed of having an illegitimate son. Mm -hmm. But I guess he's just so pumped about having a son that he doesn't really care if it's from Catherine or not. Yeah, and I think he saw this as proof, like, problem's not with me, you know? <laughs> yeah, right. It's not me. I'm doing, I can do it. So as a brief tangent, I do want to just mention this for a second. There are some modern scientific explanations for why he maybe had trouble having children. And he might have had what is called the Kell antigen, hmm. which is a rare blood group that... I don't know exactly how it works, but essentially it would make it much more likely for you 
to uh, for for the person you're impregnating to have miscarriages or stillborn babies after the first try. Oh, interesting. And that kind of works because most of his kids, with the exception of Mary, mm-hmm. but his three other children were first try babies, and right. then there was a bunch of miscarriages and 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 deaths early on. Oh, that's really interesting. But here's the other interesting thing. Henry famously goes pretty much insane by the end of his life. Yes. He really loses it. And we can go into some explanations for why that much might be. But one possible theory is that he had something called McLeod syndrome. And that McLeod syndrome is tied to the Kell blood group. So in other words, there might be a way that one disease or one condition can, ex- can kill two birds with one stone. It can explain both why he had trouble having kids and why he went crazy. Interesting. It might be a leap. Yeah, it might be a leap. You never know. I mean, it would be interesting if they found out that everyone who had that had also married their (laughs) (laughs) sister-in-law. But it couldn't be that. It's got to be this calanthogen. It's definitely... It's also such a great profession, like historic scientist. Yeah, it is. There's just no proof. (laughs) These people. Just get them to study corona or whatever. Stop looking at the sweating sickness from the 1500s. What was that? So uh, he has this son, Henry Fitzroy. It is a illegitimate son, but he raises Henry Fitzroy the same as he would basically a, a son from a marriage. And some people thought that he was planning on making Fitzroy the heir. Right. And that actually becomes irrelevant anyway because Henry Fitzroy dies as a teenager before yeah. his father. But I think that also would have required the a special dispensation from the Pope. Right. So that was all, it was just like, it all came back to the the Pope. Right. So, okay, let's get into the end of marriage number one and into the marriage of number two. Yes. Which is sort of... They sort of bleed together. They bleed together. And this is kind of, when you think of Henry VIII, this is kind of the main event. Yes. Starting in around 1526, a lady of the court named Anne Boleyn catches Henry's eye. Henry has already had an affair with Anne Boleyn's sister. Yes, Mary. And Anne Boleyn, just a little bit of background, she comes from a pretty rich family. She is very educated. She was working as a lady-in-waiting first for the Queen of France. So she's kind of this worldly person. She's seen as very charming. I think, like, very beautiful or more charming than beautiful. Or I, I, all, all of the, like descriptions of people's attractiveness is really interesting in this period because it feels like they a lot of times they're described as very attractive when henry is in love with them and then they start being described as like an old woman (laughs) an old stick and stuff like towards the end and i wonder if that's reflective of people having to go with his view kind of and it's sort of shaped by how he's seeing them or i but i also think that things like childbirth took like a severe toll on them. So yeah. I, yeah. So I think maybe that plays a role, but I have no, and the short, the, what I'm trying to say is I have no idea. <laughs> you have no idea what him. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that, uh, w- one of the main things that people kind of say about Anne Boleyn, maybe whether or not she was, how beautiful she was or whatever, that she was like very charming, very charming and yeah. clearly charms Henry. The thing is that even though Anne Boleyn and Henry start seeing each other, we don't know whether they had sex or not. And it, it seems like they probably didn't. It sounds like w- what most likely happened is that Anne saw the way her sister was treated 
and you know her sister was had an affair with the king and then was sort of discarded when he got tired of her and she was like you know I'm 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 not going to do that. I'm you know I want to I don't want to just be your mistress. I want to I want to be your wife. I want to be the queen. Right. And so she basically what they believe happened is she sort of just kept him at arm's length for about 7 years. And I think that sort of drove him crazy. Like that made him really want her. Right. And so she demands that they actually get married. She's not going to just be his mistress. There was one documentary that I saw where an older lady basically says, you know, listen, Anne Boleyn never got pregnant during this time period, so they didn't have sex. And then she just looks at the camera in this, like, very sort of <laughs> very suggestive way, and she goes, but they might have done other stuff. <laughs> Great. Thanks. Thanks for that. Okay, so in the early 1530s, it becomes apparent that Henry wants to leave Catherine, who is not giving him a male heir, and marry Anne Boleyn. Right. And also Catherine, you know, again, is five years older than Henry. So she is sort of exiting the childbearing years. And Henry is still desperate for that male heir and sees this opportunity in Anne. Henry separates from Catherine in 1531, even though the Pope refuses to annul the marriage. Yes. So he writes to the Pope asking for for him to basically saying that Pope Julius did not have the authority to grant the marriage, uh, to say that the original marriage was valid. Right. So he wants him to annul it. Right. And the Pope is sort of in a difficult position. Yes. Because Catherine of Aragon's nephew is Charles V. Yes, the Holy Roman Emperor. Right. And so the Pope is under his thumb, and yes. basically is also beholden to the king and sort and he basically just sort of punts this decision and is like I'll I'll look into it. Right. In 1527 uh, Charles V it's called the sack of Rome and Charles V attacks Rome and essentially the pope is like you said under the control of the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V who is related to Catherine of Aragon and therefore would not want Henry to break off the marriage. So in one of the most consequential decisions of English history, Henry VIII says, if the Pope is not going to allow me to get married, I am not a Catholic anymore. I'm going to start my own Church of England. Yeah, exactly. He he splits off. And he uses one high church official, this guy named Thomas Cranmer, in order to sort of make arguments that allows him to amass the power to become the head of the church. Another one of his trusted advisors for his whole reign up to this point was someone named uh, Thomas Wolsey, who is now pretty much discarded. Yeah, he he was like super instrumental to the beginning of the reign, especially when Henry was a young man. Wolsey sort of was the because Henry, we, like we discussed, didn't really care that much about the minutia. Wolsey sort of took over right and was essentially kind of the most powerful man in england right under the king but essentially the most influential um and it was a big deal because wolsey was the son of a butcher came out of nowhere was sort of looked down upon by all of the other dukes and duchesses and it was just sort of incredible that this guy was in charge of everything and he wasn't the only one who came from sort of more meager means in order to rise in henry the eighth's circles mm -hmm. the person who is also very influential throughout Henry VIII's career, most of his career. Thomas Cromwell also comes from sort of poorer backgrounds. And this is really rare in English history, which is so classist. Yeah. And having said that, Henry VIII definitely does play into this sort of classism of, of England yeah. sort of naturally. 
a lot of random rules. For example, only the royals are allowed to wear purple. <laughs> so he's just <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but the other, but the thing about that that is interesting about uh, Cromwell and Wolsey. But I'm assuming Henry realized this if it was never said explicitly. But by raising someone up from nothing and making them giving them so much power, they owe him everything. Right. So they will do anything for him. Right. Right. So I think that is part of the idea. And that's why those guys were so important to him. And loyal. And loyal. Sure. And so Wolsey, for most of Henry's reign leading up to the split from the Catholic Church, is incredibly influential, but he falls out of favor because he's not able to get Henry what he wants in this case, which is to split from the church. Having said that, Wolsey had a lot of power. He's a cardinal, so he was kind of one of the heads of English, well, Catholicism at the time, and he was given a lot of freedom to control the different monasteries and churches in England. So when they do break off from the Catholic Church, because of Wolsey's work, Henry VIII is able somewhat easily to take over the church, just from a practical standpoint. Yeah. The other interesting thing about Wolsey uh, and how he factors into this stuff is that supposedly, originally Anne Boleyn was in love with this, uh, with the Duke of Northumberland, and supposedly he had asked uh, the cardinal for his approval to marry her. Mm. And the cardinal had basically said, she's low, she's beneath you, you can do better. Kind of trash-talked Anne, and Anne heard about that and never forgave it. And so she, when she saw, when she got uh, in Henry's good graces, she sort of got pretty vindictive and was ready to take down Wolsey and really influenced Henry in bringing down. And Wolsey is called to England for, or to London, I should say, for charges of treason um, and dies of natural causes pretty much on the way. So Henry probably would have imprisoned him slash killed him, but he dies before he has a chance to. And... In 1534, there is the Act of Supremacy, followed shortly by the Treasons Act, grants sovereignty over the church in England to Henry VIII, and anyone who disavows him is guilty of treason. Also, speaking of Anne Boleyn's just sort of influence behind the scenes, she is urging Henry to do this. She's urging him to break away from the church. Right. And this was also pretty unique because she had this sort of power over him a little bit uh at least at the beginning she was sort of able to almost kind of bully him a little bit in a way that was shocking to everyone around him like they didn't they had never seen the king like this because he was just so infatuated with her and was kind of scared of her right there's a lady macbeth type thing going on almost where she's really pulling the strings yeah a little bit in 1533 so now he is with anne boleyn yeah. She, Anne Boleyn, gives birth to a daughter. Yes. And that would go on to be Elizabeth I, yes. who will become Queen of England for even longer than Henry was king, right. and oversee really the growth of England. Just, perhaps I should have said this earlier, England is not the most powerful country in the world at this point. No. They are behind countries like Portugal and particularly Spain when it comes to being a military and especially a naval power. The Spanish Armada is gives Spain supremacy. There's a reason why countries like Portugal and Spain were the leaders of exploration before England and France kind of take over. Yeah. It's really starting under Henry, but then culminating with Elizabeth that England becomes the empire that we 
you know, know of it for so long. Yeah, exactly. But also when Elizabeth is born, everyone is disappointed. Yeah, Henry, right. <laughs> Henry was like, it was so, I was pumped for a boy. Apparently there was this weird thing where they would go see like seers and prophets and stuff. And they would all, they would always say like, it's going to be a boy this time. I know it. And then, it, then Henry would get pissed when it was a girl. And so he was really mad and really upset. And right. it was bad for Anne. It's sort of, took the shine out of her a little bit. So Elizabeth born 1533. I will also say that as Henry is gaining control, he has complete supremacy over the Church of England. He also starts cracking down on the monasteries in England and makes a lot of money off of that. Yes, and that is the work of Thomas Cromwell. Mm. Um, Mostly, he's sort of the one that comes up with this idea and basically realizes that there are these monasteries that have all this money. And uh, there was some corruption within the church. That was going on, but I think they also, you know, trumped up charges. They made things up a little bit, and they just sort of dissolved all of these monasteries, um, essentially to enrich the king. To enrich the king, and then also, when I mentioned 57,000 people dying under Henry, a very high percentage of that are because of religious treason. Yeah. And religious now meaning people who are Catholics their whole lives, including Henry VIII, they had to switch. There was a pretty abrupt switch that now we are Protestants. English, we're not Lutherans, we're an English form of Protestant. Yes, exactly. uh, Anglican. But these people, you know, Henry cracks down on anyone who wants to keep their Catholic faith. Yeah, and this was very controversial, you know, because essentially by doing this, Henry is saying that he is second only to God. Um, and he was just a layman, you know, he wasn't a priest, he wasn't a clergy of any kind. And I think that was shocking to people. And also there had not been this sort of thing before where it was like, your thoughts are controlled. You cannot say this. You cannot talk ill of the King. You cannot say that the King's marriage is a fraud. Um, a lot of people didn't really like Anne Boleyn. They preferred Catherine. Yeah. Catherine was popular. Catherine was really popular and particularly amongst women. They see her and they would get excited. You know, I think they supported her. They did not like Anne Boleyn and they said horrible things about her. They called her a whore and all sorts of stuff. And that is part of why Henry makes this basically illegal to say this. And this is what starts this thing where Henry goes from being this like beloved universally beloved leader to starts to become a little scary it starts to become a little tyrannical like okay it's this is the turning point it's the turning point and then i would say a particular month three major events happen in january of 1536 in january 1536 the first thing that happens is that catherine of aragon dies yes and supposedly Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn wear yellow immediately following the death, which is seen as a big insult for someone in mourning. Yeah. Wait, that probably still, if you wear yellow to a yeah, funeral. that would be insane to wear yellow to a funeral. <laughs> it's the happiest color, personally, right? I mean, I can't even imagine. Um, and I just want to say, just about Catherine, she was sort of this saintly woman. She came to England. She didn't know the language. She learned it slowly. She was very religious. She was very devoted to her husband. And, you know, even when Henry was doing this whole thing with Anne and started to say, you're not my wife anymore, this is illegal, she always said she loved the king. She would always send him nice messages. Like, and it would kind of annoy him. Like, he would, like, whenever he, like, at one point he left the castle, like, to never see her again. And um, she said goodbye. And then she asked about his health and... You know, she said, whatever happens, I'll be your wife and I'll pray for you. He'd get really angry. He'd say, like, stop it. Mind your own business. And then he like, didn't invite her to Christmas. 
And then she sent him a uh, gold cup as a present. And then Henry sent it back saying, I don't want gifts. Stop it. Stop. Just So he was just like needlessly cruel to her. Right. Um, and Anne was also like just hated her. Anne was like, Anne wanted her hung. Anne wanted. And there are rumors that Anne is responsible for Catherine's death. Catherine most yeah. likely died of natural causes. Right. Uh, pr- probably cancer, actually, yes. that she died of. But there are things going around that Anne killed Catherine but even if she didn't she certainly wanted Catherine out of the picture right and they you know they kept moving Catherine to like smaller homes poorly ventilated cold spaces they really treated her horribly and they also treat her daughter horribly Mary yeah they because that's the other thing Anne wants Mary completely out of the picture so all of everyone around Catherine is afraid that Anne is going to poison them right. because there was a rumor that Anne had poisoned someone else that had gotten in their way. It, it, so it's this very fraught situation for Catherine uh, up until her death. So she dies beginning of January 1536. The next big event of January 1536, Henry gets into a jousting accident. Yes. And the actual effects. So Henry's been a sportsman, a jouster his entire life. He is knocked unconscious for a few hours. Yep. His leg is, like, completely messed up. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to the head injury, it's possible that he had permanent concussion damage, CTE, basically. Like, yeah. you know, the problem in the modern NFL. Mm-hmm. And like we were saying, the late Henry VIII is seen as this somewhat insane person. And it's very possible that this particular event, along with some others, but this particular event could have been the real turning point there. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting thought because that's sort of a recent thing, right? Because all CTE research is kind of... Don't they say OJ maybe had CTE? Yeah, I think that, yeah. I like using that just to go back in history and just blame everything on (laughs) time anyone did anything bad. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Uh, Vlad the Impaler, actually, weirdly, CTE. CTE, Really bad, playing rugby. (laughs) Yeah, it's it is true. Every bad character in his pot, (laughs) pull pot, just terrible CTE. So So, way to make everyone all villains the victim. (laughs) So the last thing that happens shortly after the jousting accident is that Anne suffers yet another miscarriage. This one would have been a male child. And within a couple months of this, not even a couple months. Henry VIII has his eye on yet another woman who will end up being his third wife, Jane Seymour. Yes. Which means Anne Boleyn is not long for this world. Yeah. And Anne Boleyn is very... She's not happy about that. And she fights pretty hard to not let this happen. Yes. And Thomas Cromwell, going back to him, is seen as the mastermind behind finding a case against Anne that will eventually lead to her death. She is accused of a series of things among them the chief one is that she is accused of being uh, of infidelity she's accused of cheating on henry the eighth right and also of incest yes with her brother george boleyn she is found guilty of these things um said to confinement in the tower of london her trial takes place may 15th 1536 so again this is the same year as catherine of aragon dies the same year as the jousting accident she seems to be kind of at peace when it's becoming apparent to her that she's going to die. Right. I mean, the, the one interesting thing about the whole trial, so there are five guys that she's accused of having an affair with. And 
One of them is her brother. And the evidence comes from her brother's wife, who was jealous of their relationship. It's sort of unclear. Most likely all of these charges are bullshit. They probably didn't happen. She probably just... You know, it's sort of the the Tudor court is sort of this viper pit where as soon as anyone spots a weakness in a rival faction, they go for it. And yeah, Cromwell most likely trumps up these charges. He most likely tortures, has some people tortured in order to get them to confess. The other thing is that some of the people who find her guilty are her own family. Yes. So if she was found guilty by a jury, included her own uncle. Yeah. So you've got people just all over the place turning on each other. Right. And I think people, you know, it started to become, it's just about yourself. I think people would see, all right, this is not, this is not going in a good direction. If someone was accused of something, usually they were found guilty. It was very rare that someone was found guilty of something or someone was charged with something and then it was found to be, you know, they're innocent. Yeah. Usually when it started, it it was not going to end well. The other thing she was found, she was charged with. So she apparently she made a joke to someone she made a joke to the king's groom of the stool, which do you know what the groom? Did you look up the groom? Of the I, stool? I looked up the groom of the stool. It's in my notes. Yeah. <laughs> when you, when you read about the groom of the stool, it stays in the notes. <laughs> it's completely crazy. <laughs> so please go ahead. The groom of the stool was basically the person who, uh, well held the bucket that the king would shit in. Yeah. And would just walk around with the king and, and carry and, and wipe his ass and, and have that bucket. But it was like a hugely coveted position. The most esteemed position, <laughs> second to the king. Yeah. And it somewhat makes sense yep. just because if you've got a guy who has to be at your beck and call constantly, that's kind of who the king spent the most time with. Yeah, it was like his best friend. <laughs> so it was this guy, Henry Norris, and Anne was friendly with him too, and supposedly Anne made a joke to him like Henry why are you still single and she said are you and she made this weird joke that was like are you trying to fill a dead man's shoes and the joke was implying that was he waiting for the king to die so that he can marry her it was just a joke it was an innocuous comment but someone heard that and Anne was charged with wishing the king's death and so was Henry Norris. And so that was a huge, that was part of the the thing we talked about earlier, the act, the act of supremacy. Yeah. Uh, it was part of the act of supremacy. So she was charged with that too. Wow. I, I actually did not, I, to be honest with you, I did not know that story. And I just wanted to bring up the groom of the stool whenever I would find any way of bringing it up. And I am so glad that there was a smooth way to bring it up. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, this, well, what a shame. I mean, that's... I mean, yeah, everyone needs to talk about the groom of the Story. You should bring it up in every episode. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're just talking about Mao and just be like, did he have a groom of the stool? <laughs> so Jane Seymour. Oh, well, I, I'll wrap up the Anne Boleyn thing just by saying on May 19th, 1536, Anne Boleyn was beheaded. Yes. By not an axe, but a sword. Yep. Which was a little bit rare. She, she, you know, that was her one request, basically. And they're like, yeah, sure. Sure. And, and but apparently she had like this weird last night where she was in the tower. She could like hear them building the scaffold. Like, so she was like trying to pray and get herself at peace. And then this was going on. And then apparently it got delayed. And then anyway, the guy finally came and they cut her head off. And they also made her last, right? They first killed all of the people that she supposedly had sex with. Yes. Yeah. They killed everyone she supposedly had sex with. And she went on this like blood soaked scaffold and had her head cut off. And, you know, everyone in England was basically 
happy. Uh, they really didn't like her. Right. So the new wife is Jane Seymour. And Henry and Jane Seymour, they get married in 1536, May 30th. So that would be 11 days after Anne Boleyn is executed. She, again, sort of proper English person, but she's a little less educated than the other two. She was the lady-in-waiting for both Catherine and for Anne. Mm -hmm. And she was actually Catherine of Aragon's maid of honor. Oh, I didn't know that. So we're kind of going back to the more Catherine-friendly wife. You know, so Catherine and Anne, big rivals. Now we're kind of back to Team Anne, uh, team Catherine a little bit. Right. And actually, Jane, one of her things was trying to bring Mary back into the line of succession, bring her back into favor, get her, her father to acknowledge him. Yes. And, you know, this was sort of... The, the Anne thing was also sort of helpful for the king because a lot of people didn't approve of that marriage. And what happened, and then Catherine was dead, and this whole thing happened with Anne. So this was sort of like a fresh start. Right. So everyone could kind of get on board with it. This is where Henry was like, all right, this is my first wife. Yes, this is the start of something. And sure enough, a year and a half into their marriage, finally, Henry gets a boy. Yes. Edward, who will go on to be king of, you know, he'll he'll be Edward VI, Mm -hmm. and will be Henry's successor. Right. So Jane Seymour, the third wife, is the one that finally gives Henry what he's always wanted. Yes, exactly. And this is sort of, Jane is sort of the love of his life. He sort of, even through the end of his life, he thinks of her as like, she was the one, she was my true love. She, He has like a portrait painted at some point and he's married to someone else without, uh, uh, then and he's still, but the wife in the photo is Jane Seymour. Right. And they're buried next to each other. And they're buried next to each other. So that was always his one. Now, what would have happened if they'd continued if she'd lived? I don't know. But only two weeks after, or roughly two weeks after she gives birth to Edward, Jane Seymour dies of complications from childbirth. Right. And that would be, so, so far we're at, just to review, we're at annulled. Yes. Executed Mm -hmm. and dies. Yes. For the first three. Yes, exactly. And this As, was really crushing for Henry. This was crushing. And like we said before, you know, basically Anne, he marries, He well, he, he starts seeing immediately during his relationship with Catherine. He marries Jane Seymour, you know, doesn't even wait two weeks in order to marry Jane Seymour after Anne, but he really grieves for Jane Seymour. Yeah, he's he's very sad about that. He doesn't get married to his next wife, Anne of Cleves, for another roughly... Two and a half years. Right. And, you know, throughout this whole period, his court are saying, you need to get married again. You've only have one son. People die constantly. You know, children die all the time. So they really, he really needs a second son. A backup. He needs a backup. Right. A backup just the way that he was the backup. Yeah, exactly. You know, they know firsthand that that's what happens. Yeah. And in 1540, Henry marries Anne of Cleves. Right. So this is sort of... (laughs) <laughs> like a weird whole weird situation well this one of the in terms of getting to i feel like this whole thing all of the drama and all of the soap opera behind this stuff is very relatable today yeah the Anne of cleave story i think is particularly relatable yes it's basically the first catfish yeah it, it really is that's a good that's a good way of putting <laughs> it he agrees to marry her based solely on her portrait there is a portrait made by hans holbein the younger just in case you, in case you're confused, everyone. I, I, I just, I know that's a common, yeah, misconception. So the younger, he paints a portrait of Anne and of of Anne of Cleves. So just to back up for a second, Cleves is a region in Germany that is Protestant. 
And that's important because Henry has made enemies of the Holy Roman Empire, Spain, all the Catholic countries in Europe. So he's desperately trying to make alliances with places that are Protestant, just like England. Right. And for Cromwell, this is also crucial because he is Protestant and he doesn't like the switch from the Protestantism of Anne Boleyn to the Catholicism of Jane Seymour. So he is trying to get this marriage secure so he can... Bring the Protestants back. Right. And I, we, uh, sorry, I forgot to mention it before. Jane Seymour, because she's sort of, it's in line with the fact that she's very sympathetic to Catherine, she would be seen as kind of going back to Catholicism in a lot of ways. Yes, exactly. So Cromwell wants this, the Church of England to stand. And he is the matchmaker in setting up Henry with Anne of Cleves. He gets Hans. Holbein to paint the portrait. Henry insists, make the portrait, he says, make the portrait realistic. He's like, I don't want you doctoring anything up, making her look better than she looks or whatever. Yeah. Apparently he wanted to meet her and he wanted to meet people. He, he, he There were a couple of other women he was romancing, and, but it was like not allowed at the time. Why do you need to meet her? And so he was like, all right, just get, give me a good portrait. So he sees the portrait. He's interested. Yeah. Then the first time that he meets her, he doesn't reveal that he's Henry VIII. This is completely bizarre. This is one of the things that is like, this is like a different planet. I don't even understand why you would do this. So is it that he wants her to like him for him? I think, Is it like a rom-com type of... All right, so here's what happens. He goes in, he's sort of impatient to meet her. It's this grand meeting that's scheduled. And he's a little impatient. Right. And apparently there's this thing in Tudor tradition where you go in as disguise, like disguised and you surprise your bride-to-be and that's how she, and she kisses you on the cheek and that's- yeah, she loves it, right. And she loves it. Yeah. Anne of Cleves is, does not know this tradition. <laughs> so Henry shows up with- Anne of Cleves, by the way, kind of like Catherine, doesn't speak English. I mean, she's not from, yes. she's, she's German. Yes. Yeah. And so Henry goes in with five guys and he's dressed in some weird costume he goes up to Anne of Cleves and tries to kiss her. And she sort of recoils, you know, to be honest, what she's seeing is like this weird guy. She doesn't know who he is. He's overweight. He's got this leg that's, you know, this pussy leg. Yeah, the description slash recreations of the leg are just horrific. Yeah. yeah. So I, I don't, they didn't know medicine back then, basically. Yeah, right. so the he's also just, healing himself a lot of the times. Yeah. He thinks he's a doctor. Anyway, yeah, keep yeah, going. Yeah, so it's like got the smelly leg. So this guy tries to kiss her and she's like recoils. Henry's offended. He's like, uh, you know, what, what is this? She doesn't know. She doesn't know this tradition, which is weird because you would think that you would, it would be a test the other way, right? Like I'm going in dressed as an old man. If she makes, I'm gonna I'm gonna go dressed in this disguise. If she makes up, it makes out with me. That means that she's not true to me. Right. It's, it's very weird. Right. What is it? What, you want to go? You want to <laughs> marry someone that's just gonna kiss some random guy in a disguise? That's a great, great point. And also, it's not like he's revealing his personality or something like that. No. He's just doing this weird jackass <laughs> prank thing. I, I really, I, it's, again, it's like, there's no tethering to reality. Yes. Like this tradition or his reaction to it or a- any part of it. So he reacts terribly to it. Yeah. So much so that 
he claims, and whether he thinks this actually or not, that she's just so horrifically ugly yeah. that he was misled by the painting and he can't even consummate the marriage because she's not attractive enough. By the way, at this point, it's also very possible he's impotent. Yes. So right. he might be trying to hide that as right. well. Right. And Anne of Cleves very quickly is out of favor with Henry. And she's really worried because she knows what has happened so far to his other wives. It's, it's not good. And so, she, yeah, so he starts spreading this thing around that she's ugly. She's hideous. She's not good looking. She doesn't look like the portrait. And he... Turns on Cromwell, too, because Cromwell is the one that sets up this marriage. Cromwell is kind of his hands are tied also in terms of this had political ramifications, international relations ramifications. He can't just get out of it so easily. So they find some loophole where basically at 11 years old, Anne of Cleves was betrothed to some French nobleman. And so the lawyers argue that, you know, that this marriage was not, again, they're just trying kind of like with the Catherine of Aragon thing. They're just trying to find ways to get out of the marriage, quote-unquote, legally. Yeah, exactly. And Anne of Cleves breaks her wedding ring into pieces. She retires into the country. She goes on to, like, learn English and... She has a great life. Yeah. She is really smart. I think she was worried, knew what could have happened if she was stubborn. And she sort of does what Henry wanted Catherine to do, which is just sort of retire peacefully, just sort of agree and go away. Henry would have been so happy if Catherine did that. So Anne of Cleves, they're married on January 6th, 1540, divorced July 9th, 1540. Yeah. And the fifth wife, who he marries on July 28th, 1540, so that would be 17 days later, is Catherine Howard. Yes. Now, this is interesting because that uncle that you mentioned earlier of Anne Boleyn's, who uh, turned against her, the Duke of Norfolk. Yes. This is his other niece. Got it. So he basically, you know, is looking for a way to get back into power. He's in the Catholic faction. He sort of seized Cromwell's out of favor, and he pushes his niece forward. Right. She has no parents. No one's really looking out for her. She's really young. She's like 15 years old. And her uncle's basically pimping her out to the king. And Henry adores her at first. Yep. He's very, very into her. Calls her a rose without a thorn. Right. And I think it's also, uh, you know, again, at this time, he's starting to feel old. He's starting to feel, you know, he's got this weird leg. He's getting, he's getting overweight. He's not as athletic as he was. And so this young woman is really appealing to his vanity. Catherine also does not last terribly long. Right. In this case, with the Anne Boleyn thing, it seems like it was pretty fabricated in terms of her cheating on Henry. Right. And with Anne Boleyn, it sort of seems like Henry almost tacitly endorsed Cromwell to go forward. Yes. Like, to, um, to push ahead with this. Like, he almost sort of said, if you find something against her, you know. Right. I'd be okay with that. And that's, of course, probably because Anne is not giving him a male heir. Yeah, exactly. I mean, maybe she, maybe the marriage is just not going well anyway. Right. But. Well, the other thing about Anne was that, so she was like pushing him away sexually for so long that I think when he started to have sex with her, he was like, wait, you're more experienced than I thought you were. And apparently she like had all of these, t I, I don't really know what the deals, all these techniques that he was surprised <laughs> by. And he was like, I don't know what she's learning in the French court. He started to get revolted by her. He was like, she's this weird French lady. I don't know anything. <laughs> I don't know what she's doing. So Catherine is... Also, before this, sorry, before yeah. this, Cromwell goes down, yeah. finally, um, he gets executed. Yes, Cromwell actually gets beheaded as a result of this mismanaging of the Anne of Cleves stuff. Right, and so, and all of this stuff, 
it was never that like Henry was killing Cromwell for the Anne of Cleves thing. It would always be Henry. He would fall out of favor with Henry. Other people would see the weakness and would find all of these, would make up all these charges against him. He would get arrested. And, you know, again, once you're charged with something, that's it. You're kind of done. Yeah. It was almost kind of like a Stalin kind of thing going on. Yeah. You you see things that resemble this with dictators for the next 600 years. Yeah. and And it's the type of thing where... Henry sort of has this unique ability to just sort of cut people off, write them off and say, you're dead to me. That's it. Um, And so Cromwell, yeah, gets beheaded. And it's sort of a gruesome beheading. He gets beheaded the day, either the day of or the day before his marriage to Catherine Howard. Supposedly, they paid the axe man to like drink. So he was drunk. And then he like, it took him like a couple of tries on Cromwell. It was really brutal. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah. So the other person that we should mention, so there are three very, very famous men who were in Henry's inner circle that he turns on. The first one is Wolsey, who he doesn't actually behead because Wolsey kind of dies before he has the chance to. Second one would be Cromwell, who he does kill in this gruesome way after the whole Anne of Cleves debacle. Mm -hmm. The third would be Sir Thomas More. Yes. Sir Thomas More famously wrote, was a religious figure who wrote a book called Utopia, Mm -hmm which is kind of still studied in political philosophy classes today. And he was kind of this high religious intellectual at the time. Yeah, and he really got along well with Henry. Um, This was back like in the early days and during the Catherine time, the Catherine of Aragon times. Right. And Henry sort of saw him as an intellectual equal. He sort of learned a lot from him. But then when he asked for his opinion on annulling the marriage to Catherine. Thomas More was a devout Catholic and was opposed to it. Right. And there's a whole movie, One Best Picture. Yeah, great movie. Man for All Seasons, 1966. Yeah. And that's about the the break between Henry and his very good friend, Thomas More. Yeah, and similarly to how he treats everyone else, he has him beheaded. He just does not care. There's no part of him that shows mercy. He right. just goes for it and has them killed. Although, you know, it's funny when you... Supposedly, he does show mercy on, like, the people who are found guilty of having sex with Anne Boleyn because they're they're supposed to be hung, drawn, and quartered. And he's like, you'll just be beheaded. Oh. (laughs) Very nice. That's... I mean, compared to the drunk axe man, I mean, that's... That's really a treat. What does quartered mean? I think it's like you're just chopped. Oh, God. Okay. So, Catherine Howard is the fifth wife. Henry dotes on her, but Catherine Howard legitimately does cheat on him. Yes, and so it it comes out that she had had relationships before being with the king. Yes. Which is separately crazy, because again, she was like 15 years old. She was also, I think, molested by a music teacher when she was very young, I think 13. Right, exactly. But then it turns out that also she she most likely conducted some affairs after. And the particular one was with one of Henry's courtiers named Thomas Culpepper. Yes. Who she, when Henry turns on Catherine Howard, saying basically, you cheated on me, I'm going to kill you, she pretty openly says, like, I love this guy, Thomas Culpepper. Yeah. So this would be the second wife that Henry beheads. She's executed at the Tower of London, a la Anne Boleyn, Mm -hmm. on February 13th, 1542. 
Right. And this is also like Henry's really sad when he finds this out. Like when right. he finds out about Anne Boleyn, it sort of confirms suspicions. This is sort of comes or up, he no? makes it up. Right. Yes, I mean, that's yeah, right. yeah, yeah, right. But in this case, well, you know, what's interesting, what would happen is I think he had suspicions. He would tell Cromwell to dig up proof. Cromwell would fabricate proof, bring it to Henry and Henry would then genuinely believe it. I think mm. that he would convince himself that he was wronged, right. that he was, you know, that this was, he would, he would believe these stories. It's fascinating. Yeah. That almost reminds me of, did you watch the Michael Jordan documentary? Yes. That reminds me. So one time Michael Jordan was playing against the Washington Wizards. They had back-to-back games and there was a guy on the Washington Wizards, I'm blanking on his name, but a guy on the Wizards who was a mediocre player, but had a great game against Jordan. Jordan had a okay game and Jordan said that the guy walked off the court and said to Jordan, good game. In I suppose in Jordan's mind, a, you know, kind of like trash talk yeah. ways, being sarcastic. sarcastic. The next game, Michael Jordan just goes insane, has like a, you know, a million points, whatever, and gets revenge on this guy, on this Washington Wizards player. Later in this documentary where Jordan is talking about these events, you know, decades later, he says, yeah, that guy didn't say good game. <laughs> <laughs> So he would just make things up in his head to be a yeah. great, I guess in that case, competitor. Yeah. But this is a real thing where yeah. people just... It's bizarre. And then you come to believe it, I guess. It's very, very strange. So we're up to wife number six. Yep. The sixth and final wife is Catherine Parr. Also weird that half of the wives are named Catherine. Well, there are like three names at this point. <laughs> it's like Anne, Catherine, uh, Jane... Mary, Mary, for sure. Mary, Elizabeth. <laughs> I think that's... And for men, it's like Henry, George, Thomas... Edward. Edward, that's right. Richard. Right, I guess Yeah. Right. No, no, I'm not saying no, it to no. like disprove you. I mean, my my say, no, no, no. There are nine. <laughs> yeah. So Catherine Parr is a member of a prominent Northern family. She's named after Catherine of Aragon, who is her godmother. Wow. So again, now we're kind of going just like Jane Seymour has ties to Catherine of Aragon. Catherine Parr, the final wife, also has uh, ties to Catherine of Aragon, the first wife. And Catherine hates Catholics. Yep. So that goes back to that when you're talking about that balance. And Catherine Parr is Henry's wife when Henry dies in 1547. Yeah, she's the one that makes it out. And she cares for Henry's leg wound, apparently. Apparently she was like a pretty dope, yeah, which takes a lot. It's brutal. Well, when they describe the the images of the leg wound are bad enough, but when they describe the aroma. Yeah, the smell is supposed to be really bad. It's also like, supposedly Catherine really did not want to marry Henry. Like he pursued her pretty hard and she sort of was back into a corner. At this point, no one really wanted to marry Henry. No. He was old. He was... Killing people. He was yeah. killing people. It was... Yeah, his wife didn't have... Wives didn't have a good track record. She saw it as her obligation to marry him. She's actually in love with this guy named Thomas Seymour. Who was Jane's brother. Right. So, uh, Catherine Parr, final wife. She is a very, very impressive woman in her yes. own right. She is the first published female author is in England. True? Yeah. Oh, my God. And she is with Henry until the end of his life. Yeah. In uh, so in 1547, finally, this English we can call him tyrant, right? Yes, uh, dies. Well, there, there's one interesting thing that happens, which is that he seems to have a mostly peaceful life with Catherine, but at one point, the Catholic faction, which is still active within the church, 
is plotting to bring her down because they see her as a threat. So she used to have these conversations with Henry where she would sort of push him towards more reform of the church, more reforms. Again, he was Catholic, so he didn't necessarily welcome these conversations. So one day he gets a little annoyed and one of the Catholic members of the court hears this. He talks to Henry and basically convinces him to arrest her. The king issues a warrant for her arrest and by chance, someone drops the arrest warrant one of Catherine's ladies sees this, goes up, tells Catherine what's right. going on, and Catherine freaks out. She's like seeing, you know, Anne Boleyn. She's seen Catherine Howard. She's seen everyone's fate. No, it's not going to end well for her. So she goes up to the king and she's crying. She's weeping, and she basically says, "I, I, I'm so sorry." I, 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 he was, he was, he asked her, "Why are you crying?" And she says. I was just crying because um, I didn't want you to think I was a bad wife uh, because I, I encouraged all these debates. I was only debating you to get your mind off your leg and all your pain. And so the king immediately turns back on her and loves her again. And she totally saves her skin. That's great. Yeah. But it was going to, again, once again, it was going to be bad for It was going to be number three. It was going to be number three. <laughs> but she makes it out yeah. and she lives on past him. So yeah, so she is the only one who survives it. She survives it. She goes on to marry Thomas Seymour, Jane's brother, right? who she was in love with before. Right. So she's also put in charge, even during Henry's reign, of Elizabeth and Edward's education. Because Mary's a little bit older. And so she sort of feeds them this Protestant influence. Henry dies. Edward becomes king. But Henry puts in charge a council of people to basically be king while he is, to be in charge while he is young. But what starts to happen with, Elizabeth is living with Catherine and they get along very well. But what starts to happen is Thomas Seymour starts to have an affair with Elizabeth, who's really young. She's like 13 years old. He sees that as his way to actually get power through Elizabeth. Right. And it causes this, uh, Catherine Parr catches them causes this huge scandal it causes this break between Catherine Parr and Elizabeth who are really close and it's like this really traumatic thing and I think Elizabeth partly because of this but mostly because of what happened to Catherine Howard she was friends with her she saw her she was close with uh, her stepmother she saw her being beheaded vows to never get married right that's the source of why she says she's going to be a virgin yeah so she becomes the virgin queen famously And Henry's, just to talk a little bit about Elizabeth and Henry's kids. So Henry Fitzroy, the kid that was illegitimate, dies young. He dies at 17. Right. But the next ruler after Henry VIII is his son, Edward VI. And that would be his son with Jane Seymour. Mm -hmm. And both of his daughters actually end up being queen as well. Bloody Mary for a short period of time. And then, of course, Queen Elizabeth, who is the queen during Shakespeare and during the Spanish Arm- the feat of the Spanish Armada and yep. one of the most influential leaders of really history. Which is, of course, the irony of Henry's whole life, that the probably the ba- best part of his legacy, the biggest influence that he has is producing Elizabeth I. You yeah. know, that is... And that's a that's a female ruler. Yeah, and that's yeah, it it is an incredible end to the story where his biggest fear was actually the opposite. It shouldn't have he shouldn't have been afraid all along. Yeah, and guess what? He shouldn't have beheaded all those people. (laughs) (laughs) Who knew? I know (laughs) it wasn't worth it. (laughs) No, not at all. So, why did you, Germain Afonso, choose Henry VIII? Okay, so I think 
I'm fascinated with, I, I think people in general are fascinated with rise and fall stories, right? And Henry VIII is sort of an example of that. He starts off as this handsome, young, promising king, and then by the end of it, he's this old, corrupt, fat, you know, king that's infertile and uh, is just unhappy. And then also built within that rise and fall story are like 10 other rise and fall stories. Right. It's like the rise and fall of Anne Boleyn, the rise and fall of Thomas Cromwell, you know? And so it's like very few people in the, come into this universe and like retire to the countryside. They're all just like, they all come in hot. They rise skyrocket to the top. They go into Henry's favor and then they like a week later, they're being beheaded. And I think that that is really fascinating to me. Just seeing how that plays out and then you know i also felt i felt a little a bad at giving you this assignment because it was like henry is like six wives there are all these people yes i it, this is a great <laughs> i should feel bad no, no yeah exactly yeah um i you know listen if you want to more formally apologize <laughs> I would. we'll do it off mic yeah <laughs> but he is one of these guys where you're choosing Henry, but really by choosing Henry, you're choosing like 40 people. <laughs> you're choosing like 100 years of history. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I, you know, I'm sorry for that. <laughs> no, I did no research before this. Yes. So it's, well, you have a team. People don't know that. You have a team of about, what is it, 60 people? It's that, about 60 people. We kind of, there's in, a lot of turnover. In the studio. Year. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's underground in Switzerland. People don't know <laughs> where we go to record. But anyway, um, the other thing that was interesting, I think, about Henry, and you touched on this a little bit earlier, I think, about how, you know, it's all this salacious gossip, and did he have sex? Did she have sex with his brother? And all this stuff. But it's always interesting to me when there's something that's, like, so simple, like a story that's very simple, that's like, he wants to have a son, um, and so then his wife can't give him a son, so he finds a new wife. But it ends up having these like huge political ramifications for people in history, and you know people's lives. People are killed. It affects people in the, in the country, and it goes on for years. You know, the queen is still the head of the Church of England now. That goes to the troubles in Ireland. You know, it's just the ramifications of this guy needing a son is just monumental. Oh, it's it's incredible. It's it's completely crazy. And so that's a sort of intro. That was also very interesting to me. Just how how simple it is. What he you can just follow the story very easily, and but it's just right on top of huge political upheaval and wars and death. And um, it's just interesting how how close it is, the personal and the political. I guess. Yeah, it's an epic, epic tale. Yeah. So thank you so much, Jermaine Afonso, for coming on and. Uh teaching me about about Henry VIII, about about all these wives and about all the people that surrounded him during this long, long reign of terror. Yeah, by the way, I just want to clarify too that like, you know, I I read like a book about him. <laughs> you look this stuff up online and there's like contradictory things and all this stuff. So, you know, I, I know some stuff, but I'm not, I'm not an expert. Of course, of yeah. course. And I, I, you know, certainly don't want to pretend to be uh, at all either, even though I've never explicitly said on this podcast that I do research. <laughs> so I do Sorry for outing you. <laughs> um, thank you for having me. Of course. <laughs>